0: What's your dream? What's your goal? What's your motivation? What's important to you? What's your passion? What can you do to change the world? This is What's Involved. Conversations with thought leaders and change makers from around the world. Hear stories of hope and inspiration to help motivate people like you to live your life, find your passion, and live your dream. Together, we can all bring positive change to our world. Now, here's your
1: host, David Watts. Once again, it is Mix FM. i got a great guest on the show for you at the moment. I've spoken to her before, and, and honestly, I thought with, with her job, I wouldn't be talking to her again in a hurry. And suddenly, I am. Who am I talking about? Well, my guest is uh, Anne Bicard. She is uh, the author of the first book that we talked about, uh, The uh, Saving a Stranger's Life, The Diary of an Emergency Room Doctor. And... I have no idea how she's done it, but we're going to find out. She's just released another book called "Holding My Breath: Further Exploits of an ER Doctor." And welcome, so good to have you back on the show.
0: It's really lovely to chat to you again, and thanks for inviting me.
1: Right, so now for those who m- may have missed out on the on the last uh, conversation, um, your your first book, uh, "Saving a Stranger's Life," that was like. If I recall slap bang in the middle of COVID, wasn't it? And and somehow you you managed to write this book, and it was both incredibly personal and it was touching, and there was humor in it, there was sadness in it. Um, and now suddenly I see there's another one out. So give me a bit of background about Anne. Who is Anne? And how on earth did you end up becoming an ER doctor?
0: So um I just sort of ended up in the ED because that's kind of what I ended up doing. Um, When I qualified, there wasn't a speciality in emergency medicine. So people worked in the ED just as a kind of in-between thing or as a part-time thing if they had a general practice while they were qualifying as a specialist in a different kind of speciality. But now there is a speciality in emergency medicine. So the people who work in the emergency room now are actually specialists in emergency medicine. And um, I've just kind of been doing it for the last 25 years or more and um, just ended up being kind of what I do and what I'm good at. And so I keep working and as I keep working, I keep uh, getting more stories to tell. So I keep writing them down. And um, yeah, the first book started, I kind of started retrospectively for the sort of first day of COVID, the first case of COVID that we identified in South Africa, which was on the 5th of March, 20. 20. Um, and it's a kind of a, not quite a diary format because the stories are from over the last 30 years. Um, but um, yeah, just kind of going through the the, the the sort of COVID waves as they hit us and really interesting for me to look back at that book and think where we were in the first lockdown and where we were in the, you know, in the second and third wave and where we've been now in this book up to the fifth wave. Um, yeah. So just... It's a bit of a diary, a bit of a, a story about what it's been like on the front line for the last couple of years.
1: I've got to tell you that I take my hat off to you and, and to anybody that works in um, the emergency department at an emergency room because I've, I've seen firsthand some of the stuff that goes on there. How on earth do you manage to not only survive, but thrive in that environment. Um, and and it is it is incredibly high pressure. And then you still make time uh, to to sort of keep a diary and to share some of these stories. Uh, I, my mind is blown. I mean, do you get time off ever?
0: Well, I, my, my sort of structure that I ended up working, which actually suits me really well, is to work sort of the first part of the day every day, so the kind of six to two slot. Um and, but I do that sort of seven days a week. So it then works out for me that um, I still get some time in the afternoon to do some stuff on the farm. And, and um, I don't have to sit in the traffic because I, uh, you know, I go before the traffic. Um, the hospital that I work has quite far from where I live. So um, it's quite a long drive. Um, sadly, I really like that hospital. So <laughs> and I also really like my farm. So neither of them are shifting. And that's the way it's been for the last... As I said, over 25 years, so i just um, stayed there. I moved, I moved to hospitals briefly, but I, I missed my community so much at the first hospital that I ended up going back then. So, um, yeah, so so I, I travel quite a bit, which gives me quite a lot of, of time to think. I mean, travel in a car, not travel uh, um, away. And uh, that gives me some time to think. And, um, you know, sometimes it's six o'clock in the morning, there aren't any customers, and I get a chance to write a bit at work. Um, we were pretty busy, but during COVID, there were a couple of days where we were extremely quiet. People just didn't, you know, when we were sort of waiting for the first COVID customers to come, um, the hospital was eerily quiet. I mean, it was almost like all the people that were having heart attacks and strokes, I don't know where they went because they, they didn't come to the hospital. So I wrote quite a bit during that time. That was sort of when I really started putting things together, the stories sort of from over the years.
1: Okay, I mean, that, I'm just I'm thinking back on that, and and it almost seems like we spent two odd years in in limbo, in some kind of a dream. Um, and and often I speak to people, and I'm like, okay, well, how did you get through it? And and they all give me the same answers: like, I have no idea, no idea how we <laughs> made it, no idea because it was so unprecedented. So you wrote the mm-hmm. the, the first book, and it, it was a great book, and it was a a best-selling book. And if you haven't, by the way, if you're listening and you haven't read Anne's first book yet, do yourself a favour, get both of them because they are brilliantly written um, and and written with humour, compassion. It's amazing stuff. Uh, That's why when I saw the second one land on my desk, I was like, okay, I need to speak to you right away. Um, So Anne, the the first one was a success. At the time, did you have an idea that you would be writing a second book?
0: Um, so, yeah, I mean, funnily enough, while the book was getting sort of prepared and, and, you know, so I had to make a decision, okay, now I'm sort of done now with this. Now it's a bit of a, a thing to say, okay, I'm going to send it now. Like this is, obviously it's going to be edited and etc. but this is now, I, I'm, I'm as happy as I'm going to be with what I've written and I've, you know, nothing kind of jars me. I've taken out what I don't like or I've tried to sort of, and being, you know, my, my first book kind of finding my feet. Um, so I sent it off uh, to the publishers and then, um, funnily enough, the next morning was a very quiet morning in the ED and I was like, and now what am I going to do? I was like, okay, well, I can just carry on writing about what I did yesterday, you know? And so I've just carried, I carried on writing sort of from from then. So that was another, it's been two years since the first book, yeah, well, 18 months. And, and I suppose,
1: was it in a way Therapeutic for you as well to to write these stories down.
0: Yeah, it's very cathartic. I mean, it it, it really is, and it also um, it it it's quite it's interesting to me because some of the cases that that I write about we actually present in emergency medicine meetings um, because they're cases where you learn stuff or they're very unusual and um, you know it's really nice to teach other doctors with a with an anecdote you know because a lot of those things can be really dry you know so. It's quite fun because I, I kind of write them down. As I mean, the second book, there's a, a chap that I call the Cheshire Cat, who's had such sort of startling green eyes that got greener and greener, you know, as the um, as the consultant. But he is such an excellent teaching point that we actually use it um, as part of training for doctors for the emergency algorithms and and things that you have to follow because. If you stuck to the algorithm with that guy, it wouldn't have ended well. And he was just a very unusual candidate. You'll you'll find him in the second book. And why I was, um, when he started to sweat, I started to sweat, which is what I also teach the younger doctors. When your patient starts to sweat, you must start to sweat. (laughs) So So he, he, he got sort of paler and sweatier and his eyes got greener and I got more and more sort of consultants involved and all of us were scurrying around until eventually the penny dropped and we saved Cheshire from Grimm, which was great.
1: Oh, that's the other thing. So, so Grimm has remained. That's a, that's a consistent between book one and book two. Good.
0: Yeah, yeah. Good, Grimm's, good. Grimm's always sniffing around. Always. He's always the reaper.
1: Oh, lurking, lurking in the background. Um, now, and writing all of this stuff, I mean, as you said, you literally work seven days a week. You're in the emergency medicine department. Um, and we talked in the first book about uh, about, about your farm and um, the animals, et cetera, et cetera, and just being able to go to a place of, of peace like that. Now, how did all of uh, the, the, the collection of animals, partner, friends, how did they take it when you were sort of calmly announced, well, I'm now busy on my second book?
0: Um, well, I think I'm sort of a bit of a natural storyteller. So they probably had heard the stories before, some of them. Um, my colleagues certainly have heard most of them, and they all debate about who exactly is the favorite physician <laughs> and who, well, who's the blue-eyed surgeon, There is the only one with blue eyes. I pointed out the other day in tea, the tea room. Everybody stared at me in amazement. I was like, think of the people who work here and what color their eyes are. And they were like, how do you know? <laughs> I said, well, I look at them every day. I know what color their eyes are. So, yeah, so there's some debate about who the different people in the, in, the, in the book are, but my sort of family and friends, interestingly, and even my partner that I worked in, in, in the ED with for many, many years, who's, who's very dear to me, who strange enough, don't appear really in the book. The book is sort of about my work persona, not necessarily my home persona. So, yeah, so, so I mean, they're there in the background, the Snoopies and the, and the farm, but the story's not really about that. It's more about when I walk through the double doors and my colleagues there and my people I meet and patients and that kind of thing.
1: I mean, it, it starts off most amazingly, but, but you have to tell us, please share the story about the crystal nipple.
0: <laughs> the crystal nipple. So Mr., Mr. First Customer of the Day Um, reports to me that his nipple had moved um, from its normal place um, into his armpit. He discovered it in his armpit later on. Um, So I said, wow, that's fascinating. I've never heard of a migrating nipple before. I think we should have a look. Oh, no, he sees it's back now. It was last night it moved, and now it's moved back. So I examined him, and then, I mean, there's no medical, possible medical reason. So I asked him if he was using any substances, and he admitted he was using crystal meth which is quite mind-altering and can give you visual hallucinations, which is obviously what he had. Anyway, I tried to warn him Wolf and tell him that he must stop doing that. He wasn't going to listen to me. Um, and then he came back after taking an overdose of, um, of uh, probably of, I, I don't know what he actually took an overdose of, but he was soundly unconscious. And um, we had to rescue him from grim Um And, uh, it's just an interesting, that's also interesting to me how 20 years ago, we never saw that, that kind of thing. Um, whereas now if a 20 year old comes in unconscious, first thing you're going to check for is drugs, you know, Mm, so it's a different thing. And, and, and and interestingly also in the book is, is, um, a story about a a 70 year old lady who came in shortly after, um, Crystal Nipple and she, um, was also unconscious, but of course I never thought of testing her for drugs.
1: I want to um, talk about that as well, Anne. But uh, right now, um, we're just going to take a short break. This is What's Involved. My special guest is Anne Picard. Uh, her second book uh, is called Holding My Breath Further Exploits of an ER Doctor. It is a wonderful book, um, and it certainly takes you on an emotional roller coaster of a journey. Uh, what's Involved, it is. We'll be back with Anne Picard in just a bit. This is What's Involved. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. More next. And we're back with my special guest, Anne Bicard, talking about her new book, Holding My Breath, Further Exploits of an ER Doctor. Talk to me about the 70-year-old lady, because if it's the same one, and I think it is, um, it's rather interesting.
0: Yeah, she was the, a fascinating case. So she, she was also unconscious, couldn't wake up, did... Every test I could think of, blood test, scan her head, sugar, you know, whatever. I I mean, she was breathing, but absolutely unrousable. And um, eventually I sent her off to the ICU. The physician accepted her. And I met him later on, I think actually the next day in the coroner. And I was like, what on earth was wrong with that lady? Like I was really stumped, you know. And he said, yeah, he was also um, completely stumped until her family came in and said, oh, don't tell me she started using again. And he said, using what? And apparently she was a heroin addict. Now, I mean, I just didn't even think of testing her for that kind of thing. It just, it wouldn't occur to me in a 70-year-old. In my defense, most heroin addicts don't make it to 70, you know. But, um, this didn't, you know, if you were 20, that would have been the first test I did. So it's interesting how we adjust our expectations according to what we think the patient's lifestyle or, you know, it's, it's like an unconscious judgment, you know.
1: Yeah. What you- yeah, sure. Imagine that. That was, yeah, I mean, it is absolutely amazing. There's another another one I want to get into in just a little bit. But also, I mean, we've we've come through COVID. Uh, your book covers also more about COVID and the, the fifth wave has passed and suddenly the country is apparently free again and we're all going to live what is, has what is your experience been? Have we become, I think maybe we have, a lot better um, at dealing with COVID because of the lessons learned? Um, and and is it something, in your opinion, that we've now got a handle on and it's going to be with us forever?
0: Um, so it's, a, in, it's interesting to look back on my own thoughts about COVID as it sort of evolved um, because the two previous coronavirus Um, epidemics didn't really affect us in South Africa so those were the the MERS the Middle Eastern Respiratory uh, Respiratory Syndrome and then the SARS so they were both like 10 years apart so they were like you know two outbreaks of coronavirus that gave severe respiratory distress and we well I personally never saw any of those patients so I heard about them and read about them in journals but there was no sense that it would come here you know those two, and then when the Corona pandemic began, we were all running around like crazy, just trying to get prepared. We don't not like, really show sure what was going to happen, but certainly, the, for me, the third wave was the worst wave, and it was like absolute mayhem because we just didn't we we lost our way in terms of what we could do to fix it. So, you know, the medical profession has their spells and their well-thought-out strategies and their plan for whatever we're doing. And none of that was working for for, for COVID. We couldn't figure out why we couldn't turn the ship around. You know, the the patients would come in, we'd do everything that we could think of to try and solve the problem. And if that patient was going to die from COVID, it felt to us like there was nothing we could do to change that outcome. It was profoundly disempowering. And I think gave a lot of people like post-traumatic stress because they felt like they we, we had absolutely no agency in that pandemic at all. Certainly now in the fifth wave we saw a lot of people who tested positive, you know, maybe ten a day, but they had like a flu, you know, like a sore throat and a flu. And so I can't say whether that's because the virus became attenuated, you know, in other words it's it became less virulent as it as it evolved over two years, or whether it was because people were vaccinated. Because, I mean, every person I saw asked if they were vaccinated and they all said yes. And so I, I doubt that everybody was vaccinated because I know that a lot of people didn't get vaccinated. But I think that people were worried that we would discriminate against them if we, if they hadn't been vaccinated. So they didn't tell us. So I'm not sure if it was the vaccine that was attenuating it. But certainly this last wave, we were seeing please. We saw a couple of covid pneumonia's, and, and we did have some, some deaths. But nothing like in the third wave. The, the, the severity of disease was completely different. Um, and now yeah. we're seeing a real upswing of sort of influenza A respiratory viruses, um, and the, the COVID tests are coming back negative. Whether that's because we're missing the COVID now, or because we, you know it's got a narrow window um, of being positive, or whether it seems to be going away, I, I'm not sure.
1: But it's amazing. how... It's certainly- Sure. So, yeah, and it, I, I was—I was just saying—it's amazing how, um, in terms of the third wave as well, because I had personal experience where people had caught COVID, they—they they were in hospital, and then you hear, okay, no, they—they stable, they—they seeming to get better, and the next second they were gone, uh, and and that—that that to me was was quite shocking because you you think, okay, all right, they're going to make it, and then the next second, bang. Yeah, we
0: had a lot of that kind of thing, you know, both. Colleagues, friends, you know people I know socially. Um, you know that they were sort of hoping for the patient to be discharged. Things were looking better, and then they either got a massive pulmonary embolus or had a heart attack, or you know something happened to them, and it was just came over. And certainly for us during COVID times, if we had a patient in the hospital, because don't forget the casualty doctor not only has to look after the ED, but if there's an emergency in the hospital, you have to to run to the ward or to ICU to help because often it's after hours and there isn't the doctor who's actually looking after the patient may not be in the hospital. So you're the sort of first call. Um, And um, they they put out a kind of a thing on the, like a a loudspeaker to call for help and you would have to run there and help. And I mean, we literally were 0% successful. Um, you know, when we, if we started doing CPR on patients who had, you know, advanced COVID disease, we just we couldn't, you know, we just had no success. I mean, we had to try, but it, it, you just knew that it was futile. You know, it's whatever happened to those patients, whether it was a central cause of death, you know, something in their brain or whether their heart just gave up or whether they got a massive clot or, you know, we don't, we, we still don't know because also, they didn't do post mortems on those patients. So we don't actually know what they died of. But it was pretty frightening to be, as, as you say, thinking somebody's going to be going home tomorrow. and The next thing you call Teresa, and the poor people in the ward are all looking at you with big eyes because they're, you know, co patient who they've got to know over the last 10 days is suddenly killed over, you know? Not nice for anyone.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I just, I, I, again, and still, my heart goes out to all of you guys who, who were on the front line and, and, um, seeing that every single day. Um, and that's why I was amazed the first time around that you managed to write. I'm, I'm amazed again. Um, did, did you manage to avoid uh, the virus?
0: No, no, I didn't. Uh, Funny enough, I got it. It's very interesting. Like my, my personal theory, I guess you could call it, about viruses is it's very much to do with your own immunity and how tired you are and how many sort of particles of the virus you're exposed to. So I don't think it's as simple as, you know, things like Ebola, which, you know, you're exposed to it and you either get it or you don't. These kinds of things are, you're obviously exposed to it all the time. I mean, I was exposed to it for 18 months and, you know, I wasn't doing anything differently, but I was just exhausted. I mean, during the third wave, I just saw so many people, we had to do CPR on so many people. It was just too many viruses, I guess, that I was exposed to and I was physically exhausted. And um, I went to work and my, my colleague, who's got an eye for COVID, said, hmm, you look a little bit sick. I was like, no, I'm fine. She was like, I think you need a COVID test. <laughs> and I said, no, no, I don't need a COVID test. I'm fine. I'm wearing an N925 mask anyway, so I'm not going to give it too much. She said, over here, you come. Did the COVID test. just was like so rapidly positive. She just she just shook her head and said, sorry, go. Pack your stuff and go. You have to leave. <laughs> so. So I had to wait in the car park for the next doctor to come and um, hand over to them. And then I I was off for a week. I wasn't really sick, but it was weird. I had like absolutely, I still have absolutely no sense of taste or smell at all. It was like a neurological thing. And the other thing that was really bizarre is that for about two or three months after I had proper COVID, I had like short-term memory loss. It was completely crazy. You know, I'd I'd see a patient and they'd go down to x-rays and they'd come back and I'd look at them and I'd think, I can't, I don't know who you are. And I've never been like that. I've always been like very good at holding everything in my head at any one time and not forgetting about people or forgetting to people, you know, give people scripts or whatever. It was definitely like a neurological thing. It was like a, it's like you put something down and you know it's there and you reach out to pick it up and it's gone and it's just an empty space. And you know, there should be something there, but there's just nothing, you know, Wow. So it was, that, was, that was very weird. You know, I'd look at my phone and think, gee, I phoned the guy at 7 o'clock this morning. It must have been about a patient, but I have absolutely no recollection of what it was about, you know. Luckily, the ED is not a place where you have to follow stuff up yourself the next day. <laughs> so, but I did get a few strange looks from my colleagues when I <laughs> said, what patient? <laughs> They're like, oh, the guy with the appendix. I'm like, what guy with the appendix? They're like, the person who spoke to me five minutes ago? And I'm like, oh? Okay, just remind me.
1: <laughs> so, so, so this this thing uh, would tie in uh, with with uh, the the elderly lady taking Viagra.
0: Well, yeah, she she didn't take the Viagra. Her um her husband took the Viagra. So, uh-huh. but she didn't know. So he was having a heart attack, and the cardiologist wanted to give him a particular drug that you can use to dilate the heart vessels, but it's contraindicated um, if you have if you have taken Viagra in the last 12 hours so he was having the heart attack at 10 o'clock in the morning and I didn't get I couldn't get reception in the room the recess room so I went outside we had already spoken to his wife and told her that he was having a heart attack and then I said to the cardiologist I can't um, give the the drug because he had Viagra and she said well what time did he have Viagra I mean if it's 10 o'clock if it was before 10 o'clock last night we can still give him the drug so of course being in Idiot! I say to his wife, "What time did you take the Viagra?" And she was like, "What Viagra?" Oh, like, oh! Sorry, sorry, wrong patient. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I, 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 like, oh, <laughs> that was a it, You know, it?
1: And, and it's it's weird. I I I also you know it's so many times I've said this before, but I despair for us males. I really do. Um, and when we come back, though, there was there was another part of the book that that I found interesting, very interesting story. Um, about uh, the lady who was uh, looking for for something to sort of knock her out, make her sleep. And you sort of, we're we're giving large quantities of that. We'll talk about that though, when we come back. My special guest is uh, Anne Bacard. Uh, She is an emergency room doctor at, at a large hospital and her second book called Holding My Breath, Further Exploits of an ER Doctor. Back in a bit. We'll be right back with more What's Involved. David would love to hear from you. To leave a voice message, visit whatsinvolved.com
0: and click Drop Me a Voice Note.
1: And we're back. What's Involved with Anne Bicard, author of Holding My Breath, Further Exploits of an ER Doctor. So tell me about that, because um, just the way you, you'd written that when, you know, you were waiting for this lady, you'd given her this, uh, this intravenous uh, shot and you sort of went to the bottom of the bed and you thought, okay, well, she's going to be out like a lot and she wasn't.
0: Yeah, people respond to that drug quite differently. It's interesting. So it's a, it's what we call an induction agent. Um, it's a thing that makes you go to sleep for anesthetics. Um, so it's a, a kind of white uh, substance called, called propofol. It's what Michael Jackson was using. Um, and um, the problem is that if you overdo it, even by a mil or two, you can stop breathing. So... I'm always reluctant to give too much, but you have to give enough that the patient's asleep and it varies from person to person. So it comes in a 20 mil solution and I used to use about six mils and then I had a couple of people. So I never sedate the patient without having a, a bag to breathe for them in case they get too deep. Um, And I had to use the bag a few times, which makes me a bit edgy because I'd prefer not to have any complications. So I cut myself down to four mils for them. um, And that seems to be the magic number, seems to get them to sleep, but not so deeply that they stop breathing. But this lady just gobbled up that drug. I mean, she had a terribly bad dislocated fractured um, ankle so her foot was literally sort of facing the other way and she was howling in pain and every time I'd give the drug she would go to sleep and as I touched her foot she would open her eyes and say I'm not sleeping and then I'd go back and give her a little bit more you know and eventually I'd given her like enough to put two adults to sleep and she wasn't going to sleep you know it was very obviously used the drugs. to sort of metabolize the drug in a different way or maybe she was on other medication that Sometimes that speeds up your liver enzymes so they process the drug quicker, you know. Um, but I would always be more reluctant. You know, th- Mostly that drug is used by anaesthetists. So the anaesthetist has the plan to put you on a ventilator in any case. So they just give it the whole syringe because they want you to go to sleep so deeply that you don't move and don't breathe because they're going to put you on a ventilator to breathe for you. Uh, wow. I prefer not to have to put somebody on a ventilator t- in order to, dis- to relocate their dislocated child. You know, and she was just, I, I've never seen anyone use that medication. And like such. eventually I gave the sister the syringe and I said, as she get, put it in, I switched the drip on full. So it rushed into her system and I just relocated it as she like glazed over in the two seconds opportunity I had. Because previously the time it took for me to walk around from the drip to the head, foot to the bed, she was awake already.
1: Wow. Okay. It's, it's, but it, this is, this is what, what amazes me. And I, there, there must be. I mean, amidst all the heartbreak, and yes, you've got some, some human. Sometimes you're not, you're not always successful, but that, that constant kind of adrenaline rush, um, it, it must, it must also take a toll. I mean, yeah, it's nice to feel the rush, but that must take a toll on you as well, surely.
0: Well, you see, the interesting thing is, I'm actually not really a person that likes adrenaline things, so even though I ride a motorbike, et cetera, I'm actually, I'm not a, a like a crazy fast driver or I've never done any sort of extreme sports. I mean, I was reading the other day about these people who do skydiving. So they, they throw their parachute out the plane and then they jump out the plane after it. And then they have to like skydive down, get that little, you know, parachute on their back and then open the parachute. It's a sport. I was like, who would do that? No, I, I just don't get that. I, I'd never go skydiving or bungee jumping or any other sort of adrenaline sports. I'm not really a person for adrenaline. And in fact, if I had to go back again, I may not have chosen the ED because I'm not a person who likes adrenaline. I'd prefer to have a nice calm day with everything under control. Um, But, you know, it's kind of what I ended up doing. And then, you know, you, you, you sort of get used to it and it seems less... I think that the the, the thing that is really quite scary in the EU is not if people come in and the the patient's already, you know, passed and you are just trying to resuscitate them. I think the the scary thing is when somebody comes in who is, looks okay from the outside, but you can see that things are going to go wrong in the next couple of minutes. That's, that's the kind of adrenaline that wears you down because you have to act and you have to do something about what's going on. You can't just stand in and think, you know? So, yeah, so that, that, and that does take its toll. It really does. It makes you very tired.
1: Yeah. You know? Now, now, now and during the course of these last couple of years, and and um, the, the the sort of second book, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, as I said earlier, grim remained a theme there. So when we come back, I want to I want to talk to you a little bit about grim, um, and if your relationship has changed at all over the last uh, couple of years, my special guest is Anne Bicard, and her book is called Holding My Breath, Further Exploits of an ER Doctor. We'll be back with Anne in just a bit.
0: Hey, like what you're hearing? Share the podcast with your family and friends and spread the word. This is What's Involved.
1: And we're back with my guest, Anne Bicard, talking about her book, Holding My Breath, the Further Exploits of an ER Doctor. And yeah, tell me tell me talk to me about Grimm because um, you know, in the first book, uh he was almost and and so t- for those of you who may not have have, have uh, read Anne's first book or don't know what we're talking about when we just talk about Grimm. The Grim Reaper, uh the big D is is who uh, Anne refers to as Grimm. So Anne, has the relationship changed at all? <coughs>
0: Not really, hey. You know, it's a funny thing. I I was uh, reflecting in the second book um, while I was writing, although I didn't actually write that down. It's strange to me that I I see the Grim Reaper as a male energy rather than a female energy. I mean, I'm not sure why that is. Um, And the second thing is there's kind of a scoreboard between us. And for some reason, he's on the left top and I'm on the right top. So we've got, you know, if one goes to him, then that name goes on that side of the scoreboard and, and then one goes to me and you know, then we evens for the day and some days I'm up on grim and it's always good to get a point on the board. I mean, the the underlying thing is he's always going to win, isn't he? You know, at the end of the day, there's mm. no escaping, but it is nice to, to give him a little tussle every now and again and hold fast, you know, literally to, to the leg and arm of the patient while he's got the other leg and arm. And he's just like, no, 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 this one's mine. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's it's kind of just a way of of structuring the kind of um, possible outcomes in my head, and also it's a familiar adversary. So um, you know, you sometimes you can see that you you've lost this battle before you even start it. You know, um, and it, it's just a way of of understanding it, I guess, in my head. You know, I can only do the best I can. I'm not a magician. You know
1: yeah no, but to me that and that was the thing that resonated so much with me is is by by giving grim this this character this these male energies and stuff you know and and seeing him as an adversary um you know it just to me that rings so true. It's like not this time, buddy, not this time, and you're right, we don't always win um and we we're sort of running out of time and we always do this, but share with me another story and maybe one of the stories um the the the, the later the more recent stories and, and maybe one where you got a point on the board
0: sure okay well um Cheshire was a good one actually because he was he was my most recent uh, um win from 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 grim so he was um, a young man who came in during the, the third wave his wife had died of covid and um, he, was, he was very anxious. He said to me he was feeling very anxious um, and uh, he, he was feeling a bit short of breath and a bit lightheaded, but nothing specific, you know. So I thought maybe he's just a bit anxious, pulse was up a bit, but there's not really much to find. So we did some blood tests on him and did an x-ray and I gave him a tablet to make him feel a little calmer, like a tranquilizer. And I came back. 10 minutes later to check on him. And he's so when he came in, his pulse was about 140, which is quite fast. If he had a temperature, I'd I'd let that one slide, but he didn't. Came back to check on him. He's actually sleeping, um, but his pulse is now 160. So I was like, that's very strange. Um, So I woke him up and I asked him again through the history, has he had any symptoms? Nothing, no pain, no chest pain, no abdominal pain, hasn't had... uh, specifically thought he was compensating for something. So I asked him specifically, has he vomited blood? Has he had a bloody stool? No, no, no. Examine him. He's got no pain. Nothing. Even did a rectal exam, just to make sure there was no blood anywhere. Um, nothing. So I said, okay, that's okay. Blood pressure is still holding, so that's fine. I come back in five minutes' time, and now his blood pressure is dropping. And he says to me, he's really not feeling well, and um, he's looking sort of pale, and um, his eyes are looking even greener and luminouser more luminous. And, um, so I called the cardiologist, cardiologist looks at the ECG says, look, he thinks this is a, 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 you know, just a compensatory, very fast heart rate. He doesn't think there's something primarily wrong with his heart. And I said, well, I think, you know, he must be compensating for something, but what, you know, we've done all the tests. There is nothing to be seen. I've done an ultrasound on him. I've done an X-ray. I've done, examined him thoroughly. I've done bloods. I, I can't figure it out. And, um, So what do you do then if the patient's blood pressure starts to drop is that you you actually give them a drug to stop their heart because sometimes their heart goes into a very irregular, fast rhythm and because it's going so fast, it actually can't pump properly. So now the protocol says that's what you must do. So I give him the drug, I stop his heart, it stops, it goes back up to 180. I give him a second dose of the drug, it stops again, it goes back up to like 190. And by this time, I'm like, okay, I'm I'm missing the boat here. Now Grim is closing in and this is a young, healthy guy and uh, something in the back of my head is saying, he's bleeding from somewhere. He's got to be bleeding from somewhere, you know? And then I got a blood result back. It's called a blood urea. It's actually to check your kidney um, function. But if you happen to have a, a bleed into your into your gut, your body reabsorbs the blood, as urea, and his urea was extremely high in, in the context of completely normal bloods otherwise. And as I saw that result, the penny dropped, and I was like, he's bleeding for sure. And he was bleeding into his judenum, which is just past your stomach, but not yet in your colon. So if you bleed into your stomach, the blood is very irritant and you'll vomit it up. If you bleed into the colon, it's very irritant and it'll come out the other side. But if you bleed into your duodenum, you can lose your whole blood volume within an hour and no one's in wiser. So I got the general surgeon to take him to theater. They scoped him as an emergency right away, found this massive bleed. I mean, he literally bled out. His, they had to transfuse him his whole blood volume. Um, and that was just, it was just lucky, you know, and the, the surgeon later on that evening sent me pictures of the scope and I was like, wow, I can't believe like that guy survived. I mean, I actually stopped his heart when his heart was trying to compensate for something. He said to me, well, just as well, you didn't give him that drug. I was like, um, well, in truth, I did give him the drug. <laughs> so I was just lucky. You know, he was lucky. We were all lucky. Um, wow. but sure, Grim was there. He had that guy firmly in his clutches and, 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 you know, just
1: Sorry, and the green eyes uh, and becoming more
0: <laughs> and more luminous. What was that? Well, I think as he got as he got paler and paler, his eyes looked more and more striking. And I think as he got more and more worried about what was wrong, because you could see that I was really worried. I mean, I, I sort of brought the cardiologist. He said, he was such a polite guy. I, he said, oh, who's this man? I was like, he's the cardiologist. Sorry, I didn't get a chance to um, introduce you. Like, I'm in a bit of a rush. I'm trying to establish, like, is there a problem with your heart? And then he's like, oh, hello, nice to meet you. I said, yeah, I've got him specially for you. He's like, oh, thank you. You know, so <laughs> sweet. And then the surgeon comes and says, who's this man? I'm like, he's the surgeon. He's going to be taking you for a scope right now. In fact, I'm pushing you to theatre. Like with, I'm putting this hat on your head and I'm running to theatre with you on the bed. And he's like, oh, thank you. Thank you. Pleased to meet you. <laughs> I was like, oh, dear. I don't want this guy to die. He's such a nice man, you know.
1: Yeah, anyway, that, those are few and far between these days. Um,
0: yeah, there are. there are. Mostly, people just complain. He was such a nice guy. <laughs> anyway. mm, oh,
1: so man. And as I said, we're almost out of time. So, so what's what's next before I let you go? What's next for for uh, Anne Bicardo? You're you going to stick in the the emergency room? More plans for books? What's happening? Because I sense this needs to at least be a trilogy.
0: Yes, I also I, I feel there's there, there another. In fact, there is another another book, definitely in the, in the production line. And, um, I think, you know, hopefully in two years time, I'll be old enough to retire from the emergency room. I certainly feel about 160 years old. Um, I think probably more going into teaching. I mean, I really love teaching. I enjoy teaching younger doctors. Um, I enjoy, you know, yeah, that, that kind of thing. So probably more into a teaching role than being completely on the front line. Um, but I, I, and maybe giving something back because emergency medicine has been very good to me, you know, and, um, those coming up also need to learn, you know, and, um, it's, it's important to, to pass along what you've learned so they don't have to learn the hard way, you know?
1: Absolutely.
0: And thank you. And I mean, from
1: the bottom of my heart, thank you to you and the team that you work with, all the people in the healthcare industry, you guys are absolutely amazing. uh, the fact that you can do this seven days a week, I, I take my hat off to you. The book is fantastic. It's available in a digital format as well, isn't it?
0: Yes, yeah, it is. It is, and the first book is also in an, like an audio book then.
1: Fantastic. Okay, so look out for the first book, okay? Uh, it's called Saving a Stranger's Life, The Diary of an Emergency Room Doctor. You've got to read that one, okay? And, and it's going to take you on a roller coaster. Take it from me right now as is the second book, Further Exploits of an ER Doctor. And I think in this one, Anne, I just sensed there was more of you coming into yourself as an author there. So um, well done. It's a brilliant book. I thoroughly enjoyed it.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for the interview. Lovely to chat to you.
1: Absolute pleasure. There we go. Wraps it up. My special guest, uh, Anne Bicard. and we're talking about her book, Holding My Breath, Further Exploits of an ER Doctor. If you want to get inside there and see what these people do, this is a brilliant way to do it. So available in all good bookstores and online. Wraps it up for me for this edition of What's Involved. To each and every one of you, look after yourselves, take care, and thank you for listening.
0: Thanks for listening to What's Involved. We hope this episode inspires you to find your passion and live your dream. Don't forget to rate, review, and share the podcast. And to see what's happening, what's going on, and what's coming, follow What's Involved on Facebook and Twitter at What's Involved. Thanks again for listening.